If I were marooned on a desert island or quarantined in my house for a month and had one book of the Bible to read, it would be the book of Ephesians. Now, that would sound soft to my friend Daniel. He sat next to me in several classes in seminary, and Daniel was from China. And he would tell us stories of his life there. And he told us a story once of the authorities that came into the house church that he was leading it, and they confiscated all the Bibles, just just took them right away. And he said it kind of with a smile. And we looked at him and said, well, Daniel, why are you smiling? And he said, well, Dan, we have it memorized. <laughs> this family takes Ephesians. This family takes Galatians. And when we come together, we share the word of God. So maybe I should say, if I were marooned on a desert island and needed to have one Bible book memorized, <laughs> it would be the book of Ephesians. Ephesians gives us a clear and concise expose of the Christian life written by the apostle Paul from prison in Rome to a group in Ephesus. Now to us, it's a book in the Bible. It's just right there. It's on my shelf. And the reality of this being written from prison to Ephesus from Rome hit me when a few years ago, I I was in Rome for an afternoon. And I was walking through the forum in Rome, the old city, where you could see the Colosseum on one side. You could see the ruins of the temple. You could see the Senate steps. You could see ruins of of what was a great city. I passed by a little building that was down a few steps. And there was a sign that said, the probable place where the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And so I walked down those steps and I tried to imagine what it would be like sitting there for Paul to, to be looking out of that little window, to be hearing soldiers, Roman soldiers walk by, to hear the cheers in the Colosseum, to hear the speeches from the Senate, for him being in a place where he didn't want to be. But yet God had him there for an incredible purpose of one, writing the book of Ephesians, which we have. Each chapter enfolds truth that transforms our lives. I'm going to give a phrase for each chapter. It helps me understand the book of Ephesians, the six chapters of Ephesians. The first phrase from chapter one would be in Christ. In Christ. Many times that phrase is mentioned in chapter one, but it talks about how we are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are chosen. We are predestined. We are sealed. We are in Christ. Positionally, it tells us where we are. We are in Christ. The second chapter of Ephesians would be in grace. It starts out saying, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But for grace, by grace we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's a gift of, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In grace, we are in grace In chapter 2 of Ephesians. And then in chapter 3. In family. In family. It talks about a mystery. And this mystery is that we're all part of one body. Jews and Gentiles. That was a new thought to them. We are in one body. We are in family together. That was revolutionary. Because the Jews thought we they had a corner on God. They had a corner on truth. But for them to think that, no, there's a mystery 
that now all people are accepted by God. There's a great passage in scripture in Acts chapter 10 where the disciples learned that. You remember the story of Peter that he had a dream. And as Peter was sleeping, he had this dream where this big sheet came down with different animals on it were unclean. The Jews were not allowed to eat. And it came down and there was a voice from heaven that said, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And he said, no, not me. I'm not going to do that. And then it came down again. Finally, there was a knock on the door. And as Peter went to the door, it was a servant from one of the Roman centurions and said, please come. The centurion wants to talk to you. Peter went, and as he went there, Cornelius said, look, I want to find out more about this God. And Peter realized, oh, the dream is about the goodness of God for everyone, just not the Jews. And that sermon that Peter gives to Cornelius in Acts 10, 34, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him. God is not partial. God is the one who made all. God loves all. And God is not racial or partial. It was a powerful statement in Ephesians 3 that we are in family. In Ephesians 4, we are in process. We're in process. Yes, we're in Christ. Yes, we're in grace. Yes, we're in a family. But we're also in process. Now, just as Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith... Right? It lists all those great people who are in the hall of faith. Ephesians 4 is the closet of transformation. (laughs) It's where you go in to change. It talks about putting things off and putting things on. We go in and we take off the different things of falsehood, of anger, of selfishness, of destructive talk. We put on truth. We put on generosity. We put on... uh, encouragement, reconciliation. Ephesians 4 is the Rodeo Drive of Christianity. It's where we go to put on a new outfit. Ephesians 5, we are in relationship. We're going to be talking about that today. Ephesians 6 talks about we're in battle. We are to stand. We are to fight. We are to win. John Stott would say the first three chapters of Ephesians show Christian theology, what we believe. And the last three chapters are Christian ethics, how we are to live. And that's where we are today. Because we are who we think, in a sense. Our thinking drives our actions, drives our conduct. So how do we get from who God says we are to really how we're living that out in generosity and love and reconciliation? And in chapter 5, if you turn there, it talks about we do it in relationship. I'm going to be reading from the little Ephesians booklet that we gave out. Um, It has the text on one side. It has a place for notes on the other side. We have a lot of these. If you want one, you can just call us at the church. We'll send one to you. We'll mail it to you. If you're in our zip code, we'll um, bring it to you. Um, But I know there's a people outside of our zip code that we're not going to. I have a son in D.C. who's watching. We're not going there. Um, But... We can have these books and they're, they're great for you. Let's just look at verse chapter 5, verse 1, where it talks about how do we become like Christ. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We'll stop right there. First part of relationship. 
Be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, whenever there's a therefore in the text, we always want to know what it's there for. So we go to the verse before and go, where is the, why is the therefore there? And in the verse before in chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Huh. We're to imitate God based on the forgiveness that we have received. We have been forgiven. That's a powerful truth. Because we have been forgiven, because we have been cleansed, we can imitate God as dear children. A few weeks ago, I was teaching one of our adult fellowships, and we were doing it by Zoom, as we do a lot of things these days. And it was on the prodigal son. That powerful story of the son who asks his father for an inheritance, then leaves, squanders it all, and then comes back. And as you read the passage in Luke 15, you realize the prodigal son was a despicable guy. He was ungrateful, mean, greedy, self-absorbed, a sorry excuse for a son. He's taking the inheritance. He's spending it. But yet, when his father sees him from afar off, the father runs, embraces him, celebrates his return. That's forgiveness. When I realize the depth of my sin, and God is watching looking for me to confess, comes and embraces me and hugs me and celebrates. I don't deserve that. <laughs> for my sin, I deserve God's justice. I deserve consequences. God chooses to give mercy and grace. God's justice was put on Jesus on the cross. And to me, I've been given grace. It's a powerful lesson of what sin does to us and how we get, get grace and mercy. Well, he says, imitate God. We can do that. All right, we hear that. I don't know if we can do it. But in verse two, it talks about how we do this. And here's the two ways we walk, we imitate God. Verse two, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Walk in love. That's the first way we imitate God. We walk in love as he is love. We walk in love. It says there's a sacrifice. He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. The offering would be the life that he lived. He gave up his place in heaven, came down here. The sacrifice would be the work that he did on the cross. The offering and sacrifice that says it's a fragrant aroma. A fragrant aroma. And when we think of the crucifixion, we don't necessarily think of it as something fragrant, do we? On Friday, I was in Carbon Canyon Park uh, walking with a couple of young, younger guys. And as we were walking, they were telling me what they did during quarantine. And they, read the, or they looked at the Bible series on, on video. And they talked about how graphic it was, seeing, seeing the, the crucifixion. And they felt they were even too young to watch it. And truly, the crucifixion was horrific. F.B. Meyer writes this about the crucifixion and what it means to us. He says, in love so measureless, so reckless of cost, 
For those who were naturally unworthy of it, there was an action that filled heaven with fragrance. The life that man now lives in sacrificial self-giving to God and to his fellow man has a fragrance before God and in the world. So although the cross looks horrific, he says here in the text, it's actually a fragrance, a fragrance. And that's our life. When we're walking in love, our life is a fragrance as we sacrifice for others. Well, he talks about how we walk in love in the next verses. In verse 3, he says, watch your actions. There's going to be five watches. Watch your actions, your works, your attitude, your perspective. Watch your actions. But sexually immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, that seems random. Right here in the middle of Ephesians, he's talking about sexual immorality. What's he talking about? Where's that coming from? He's saying, watch your actions, and he knows his audience. He's talking to the people in Ephesus. Ephesus worshipped the goddess Diana, Artemis. It was a huge pagan ah, society where there was no level of morality. There was no social norm of morality. Everything went. We can't even list the things that went on in Ephesus. And Paul realized that. He's talking to those people who are facing that daily. And he knows they're in a clear and present danger. And so he calls it out saying, hey, in this immorality, in impurity, in covetousness, be very, very careful. Watch your actions. It's interesting. We have a program called Equip You, which is like a university to equip us. And Doug Huffman was talking on it the other day. It's online these days. I think it'll come back live. But he was talking about Ephesians and he said, the book of Ephesians was not written to you, Dan. The book of Ephesians was written for you. There's a difference. Ephesians was written to the people in Ephesus. Now it's written for me because all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. But it's not written to me. It was written to the people of Ephesus. So we see there, these were the problems that they were facing. And each culture has different problems that the God who we love addresses. In the culture I grew up in, alcoholism, that was the big thing. If you go through Revelation 3, the different churches, they're each called out for some other sin that they had. For Ephesus, this was their deal. Sexual immorality was rampant. There were no standards. It was just horrible, and Paul addressed it directly. The big picture is watch your actions be holy. The specific picture was immorality. Because intimacy is a sacred gift from God. You wouldn't want to abuse yourself. You wouldn't want to abuse others. It's sacred. Keep it sacred. So he addresses the sin that they face. Reminds me of trying to explain uh, to our kids the whole issue of, of intimacy. And we, we use the illustration, you've heard it, of, of fire. That intimacy is, is a fire. And that in the fireplace in the home, oh, it's a great place. It warms the house. It's wonderful. But if you take the fire out of the fireplace and put it on the sofa, you're in trouble. 
or for us one Thanksgiving, we uh, decided to, we have quite a few people come to our house for Thanksgiving, and there's a lot of frou-frou around is what I call it. And so we had a lot of frou-frou on the piano. We have a parlor grand from my wife's grandmother. Uh, No one in our house plays the piano. It's a piece. It just sits there, except when visitors come. So we had a lot of frou-frou on there, and we had some candles. In the Thanksgiving festivities, the candle fell over. All of a sudden, there's this fire going on on top of the parlor grand. It wasn't in the fireplace. It was in the wrong place. And today, I even saw it this morning, we have a charred scar across the parlor grand, always reminding me that you need to keep the fire in the fireplace. And that's a great lesson for intimacy. It's a gift from God. It's a sacred thing from God, but it has its purpose within marriage. And Paul says, watch, be very careful. Your culture is out of control. Choose never, we have a choice not to choose impurity. And it's never more present than in our our culture right now. That's verse three. Choose or watch your actions. Now that's not news to us. That's like someone saying, hey Dan, if you want to lose weight, just eat less. I got it. That's not news to me. But it's kind of hard to do. Or with any addictions, right? Someone says, hey, just stop it. Oh, thanks. That's what I was missing. Stop it. No, it's, it's difficult. And so the text talks about we're doing this in relationship. We're doing this in the body. We're doing this with each other. Verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. He talks about watch your words. Watch coarse jesting, watch deceiving words, watch smooth talking. There's power in the tongue, not new to us. Instead, give thanks. Remind me of Isaac Watts, who wrote some great songs, Joy to the World, When I Survey. He said this, our tongues were made to bless the Lord. They're a vehicle of grace. In the body, we're to watch our actions. We're to watch our words. And verse 5 goes, for you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Watch your attitude. Sin is serious. Sin has consequences. Now some of us look at that and get a little scared. Everyone who is impure or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? That's a little concerning. I walk around Balboa quite a bit with my wife, and I think my middle name is Covet as I walk around and look at the boats and the homes there. Does it really mean that if I ever covet? Well, part of hermeneutics is we, we interpret one portion of Scripture from another portion of Scripture, and we know in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, for example, that once we have, we are born in sin, we have sin, but once God forgives us, that sin is not accounted to us anymore. We are forgiven. Where Paul says, you formerly were this, but now you are forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from that. So he's talking about if that's the choice of life that you're living. If you're deciding I'm not following God. If you're following, I'm not going to follow the way that he has chosen. I am going to follow my own way. I'm going to follow this way. Then you have, you're not part of God's kingdom. Being part of an idolater. 
Watch your attitude towards sin, he's saying. It can be very damaging to us. Number six, verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Watch your perspective, is what I would say. Deception is real. Dr. Hensland, he's a psychologist in our area here. He'd come to talk to Closer Walk, our seniors Bible study a few weeks ago on Wednesday morning. Again, it's all virtual. And he's made this comment. He's written a book about your brain on joy. He's done a lot of studies on, on your brain. And where he says, watch what you think, because your mind always doesn't tell you the truth. <laughs> your mind sometimes lies to you. So watch what you think. Watch your perspective. We have a cultural perspective. And we have to be very careful. Is it true? Is it based on the word of God? Or is it somewhere else? I read this story from President Lincoln who was arguing a point with someone in the room. And as they argued back and forth what was true, Lincoln said, well, let's see how many legs does a cow have? Four, of course, came the reply disgustedly. That's right, agreed Lincoln. Now suppose that you call the cow's tail a leg how many legs would the cow have? Why, five, of course, was the confident reply. Now, that's where you're wrong, said Lincoln. Calling a cow's tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. <laughs> of course, we have to watch for truth. Watch the perspective that we have. Sin will take us further than we want to go. Sin will cost us more than we want to pay. Sin will keep us longer than we want to stay. Watch our perspective. And then verse 7. He goes on to say, therefore, do not become partners with them. Watch your associations. Watch who you hang out with. That will bring you down as well. I think that's more for teens. It's so easy to be fooled. As an adult, you kind of realize who's good and who's bad. But when you're growing up and you're, you're young, you're thinking, wow, who, who's real? Or I'll follow this crowd and that crowd. And we used to always talk to our kids, watch the crowd who you're with. They can change you so, so quickly. It reminded us of story that Pastor Chuck used to give about gardening in white gloves. He said, if you go and put your white glove in the dirt, the glove becomes muddy. The dirt never becomes glovey. <laughs> That's interesting. Watch our associations. And then he pivots to walk in the light. Not only we're to walk in love, but we're to walk in light. The most common metaphor in the scriptures and then in verse 9, or verse 8, it says, For at one time you were in darkness, now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of the light. And in verse 9, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. Light bears fruit. Being around a good person is refreshing. I heard some folks talk about the most difficult thing about being in quarantine and not coming to churches is not being around other believers, not feeling that encouragement of being together. Darkness is unfruitful, and to choose sin is to choose destruction. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Light is taking action, is thinking, is discerning. Now, what is pleasing to the Lord? And that's what we've tried to be doing, I think, as a church, thinking how do we respond? How do we be light? Especially at a time like this. As the staff got together 
Jeff said, hey, we need to have a local response, a regional response, and a global response. So we went to work. And you know our local response. We started distributing food to different places. When the city saw that, they called us and they said, hey, we have people that need food. Would you as a church go to deliver to them? We have 80 homes that we deliver to with 80 volunteers plus 30 families from the school district that they've asked us to deliver to. And I think we have some pictures there. I think of of some of our guys. Today I was walking around North Campus or this past week. Oh, there's Eric. You may know Eric. You see him around here. I said, Eric, what are you doing? He says, I go to Panera and I bring in their day-old bread. And he brings it in. We put it in different packages. And then I saw a truck pull on the outside. And it was, I think, Tom and John. They had gone to the, to the food area. They had gotten this whole truck full of food. And were now delivering it uh, to, to, to the church, North Campus, so that we could deliver it. We want to be light. The city saw that we were light. And they're begging us to be more light. And then we wanted a regional response. We heard from the free church in the district. They said, hey, there's a Hispanic church out in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. They have a feeding program for a lot of people and for a school, and it's a great ministry. But they've been hit hard with unemployment. They don't have enough funds to make ends meet this month. Would there be several churches in the district that would give? And immediately, I went to the church leadership, and they said, absolutely. What do they want? $3,500. We wrote the check so that we could regionally be light in that community with um, Pastor Adiel uh, Diaz. A wonderful family, wonderful church that we get to be. And then we get to be part of a a global response too. You know, last year we sent out Josh Amwago. He went to Kenya where he was planting a church. And that's his church already there. It's already built. Has about 200 people. They're meeting on Zoom as well. You can (laughs) look it up online. But they decided, hey, we'd like to go in the community and give food. And so we sent some funds to them and their staff. They gathered together. They packed these uh, bright blue bags. And then they started distributing them into that community. And there's a picture of them, the, the church folks going out. And they're saying the response is amazing as people are saying, why would you bring food to us? Why don't you keep it for yourselves? There's just a hoarding mentality. And then we also been to Rwanda where our partners, we have 43 free churches and because they don't have many resources stored up when the pandemic hit and they went into quarantine, they quickly used up their corn and even their seed for next year. And so to be able to send funds over where each pastor can have enough funds, not only for his family, but for his church and the community as they buy these huge bags of rice and beans and distribute it about. We are to be light and light takes action. And it's great to be a part of the action that God has given us. Verse 11 to 14 in chapter 5 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Light dispels darkness. When you're light, you don't have to work. Light doesn't go into a room and say, oh, let me erase the darkness. You just turn the light on and darkness runs, doesn't it? We are light. Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light so shine before men. Light is a gift to those in darkness. We are to be light. It's part of living who we are. He is light and we are to be light. There's no hiding 
when there's light. I saw a good example from hiding. I think it was this March when I was returning from, through, from overseas and we were going through, through Germany. And there was a different standard of TSA in Germany. Let me just say that. And I wasn't going to mention the country. But they had about 30 TSA. They weren't called TSA. But when you came through, you just emptied everything. You just emptied everything. <laughs> One of our um, fellow travelers um, made a few comments. Immediately, there were two men with guns right at them. Uh, nothing's hidden going through that. And before God, nothing's hidden. We have light. And then in verse 15, we have the uh, benediction. Or verse 14, actually. We have the benediction for this passage. A summary challenge. It's probably an early church song because there's three stanzas. It says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper. As we live this Christian life, Paul sums it up by saying, hey, wake up. Watch out. Awake. A call to attention. On Friday, as I was coming up Brea Boulevard, I was coming up north, and, and there was a car on the other side of the freeway. I could see it was a Beamer. I could see it was smoking, and it was brown smoke. It just wasn't like overheating. And I saw a lady who seemed to be stuck in the front seat. So I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to rescue her. So I'm moving. I try to go down to the end to pull a U-turn to go rescue her, to get her out, to say, hey, you got to get out of your car, because this isn't just um, overheating. There's a difference when flames are coming out the front. Unfortunately, right before I got there, a police car arrived. So I couldn't be the hero. But of course they were. And that's a good thing. But it's like, awake, hey, you got to get out of the car. Awake, it says, arise. Arise, leave the old life. Leave what you have behind. Arise. For us as believers in relationship, that's so important. To give a hand and to help someone. Arise. Here, take my hand. A few years ago, I was going through a difficult time emotionally and some other, other things that were going on. And there was an older gentleman in church that came up to me and said, Dan, take my hand. Started meeting with me. I lost my father, started praying with me, started calling me. This morning, he calls me. Yesterday, he called me. Dan, I love you. Oh, it's just the hand I need. Of a brother. A hand can save a life. Remember when our daughter Sarah was. I think uh, less than a two years old. We were at a pool. And I was doing daddy duty. Which I'm in the shallow end. That's the first step. And uh, she was less than two. So she was on the first step. And uh, we were. I was talking to other people. Okay I'll just put it out there. I'm talking to people. But I'm on daddy duty. And all of a sudden I hear a splash. And I turn around. And there's little Sarah. Barely 20 pounds. Blonde, fluffy hair, just starting to sink in the water. And I could see as she's getting deeper, a little hand reaching out. Well, I didn't take long. I grabbed her, bruised her badly. But she's alive today. Just take a hand. Giving a hand can give life. Taking a hand can give life. Arise, it says, and then let Christ shine. Let Christ shine through you. We are to imitate Christ, and we do in it by letting him shine through us. Yesterday, my sister had a, a grandson born, part of the Crane-McCulley-Cain family of our church. 
And we got a picture yesterday. And as we looked at the picture, Suzanne got it. And she looked at me. And the first thing we said was, who does he look like? (laughs) God says, I want you to look like me. I want you to imitate me. I want you to walk in love, walk in light, and shine to the world. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it, the truth of it, the blessing of it, the refreshing of it. Thank you that we can read it and hear it and see it and feel it. And so at the weight of this moment, Father, as we've heard the word, I ask that you would speak to those who are listening, that you would speak personally to us. What do we need to do? What do we need to arise from? What do we need to flee? What do we need to watch out for? What do we need to walk away from or walk towards? Father, as we commit our lives to you again today, speak to us, nudge us, communicate to us. Make us more like you, Father. We need it. We look in the mirror and we don't like what we see all the time. We want to be more like you. We want to trust in you. We want to feel that sweetness of walking with you now and throughout the days to come. We give you thanks for your love for us, your forgiveness of us, your fatherly care for us. We put our trust in you now in Christ's name. Amen.